Luke chapter 2, we'll depart this morning and next from our current series of sermons on the the book of Acts to consider themes appropriate to the Advent season. This morning, a sermon on the Lord's first coming. Next Lord's Day, God willing, a sermon on His second coming. Luke chapter 2, we're actually reading all 20 verses of the first paragraph, not just 15. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, it's a point of the greatest conceivable significance that the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ is rooted in history, as it is. During the reign of Augustus, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, This will continue throughout the Gospels, as you know, and indeed to the end of the New Testament. These wonderful things happened in those days, uh, under those governments. In the same way, Jesus died during the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Palestine and so on, while Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest. All people we know about whom we know some good deal uh, from other sources. Whatever others may think or say, this is not mythology in any accepted sense of the term. The authors of the gospel were writing what we call history. Christ's birth was a real event in the real world, in the same way that taxes are real. And we all know how real taxes are. Into the everyday world of that time, into its political and its social currents, came suddenly and unexpectedly this stupendous interruption. Luke happens to be the New Testament writer who seemed always to have an eye for what else was happening in the world at that time and who had a special interest in those moments when the history of Jesus and his apostles intersected with major figures or events of the world of his day. What is more, though there are certainly significant gaps in our knowledge of the history of that time and place, Luke's accuracy as a historian has been confirmed time and time again. He says enough to put his historical accuracy to the test. And it has been confirmed even down to the small details of geography, the chronology of Greco-Roman political history, political nomenclature, or a first-hand knowledge of local conditions. He tells us himself that he relied extensively on eyewitnesses to ensure the accuracy of his narrative. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem. Luke never actually says anywhere in this passage that any Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled with these events. But just as Malachi 3 and 4 lay behind Gabriel's message to Zechariah, and Isaiah 7 lay behind his message to Mary without Luke saying so in either case, So Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, 
lies unmistakably behind the history he is reporting here. And the point is all the more powerful for his understatement of that fact. Events conspire to ensure that the birth will occur in Bethlehem, the city of David. Even a pagan emperor's need for revenue is made to contribute to the unfolding of God's plan for the salvation of the world. And in Bethlehem, a mother gives birth to a prince of ancient lineage who will shepherd the scattered flock of Israel, extend his authority to the ends of the earth, proclaiming peace. That pretty well wraps up Micah's prediction. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The chaste way in which that situation is described is designed to call our attention again to what we were told in chapter 1 of the Lord's miraculous conception, that it was without the aid of a human father. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You notice that Luke does not tell us precisely where Jesus was born. He only tells us what Mary did with the baby after he was born. But everyone knows what is being described here because we have seen it depicted in manger scenes and Christmas pageants a thousand times. Jesus was born in a stable or a barn. The structures we're used to seeing on farms or ranches. Or so I had always assumed. However, it is doubtfully true, as recent scholarship led by men who have lived in the Middle East and know that culture intimately has shown. Previous scholarship, most of it Western, of course, tended to read the text according to the conventions of Western, not Middle Eastern life. What this statement almost certainly means is that Jesus was born in a private home. In those days, most people, apart from the really wealthy, and there would be probably none of them in Bethlehem, a small, rather insignificant little hamlet, In those days, most people lived in the same structure as did their animals at night. Either they lived on the top floor of a two-story house with the animals below them on the ground floor, or they lived together with them on a single floor of the house, a floor that had been somewhat raised for the level of the family, somewhat lower for the animals, a cow, a donkey, perhaps a few sheep. In either case, the manger was in the house. A Middle Eastern farmer today reads this narrative and assumes that Jesus was born in a private home. There would have been few, if any, separate structures for animals in a poor village like Bethlehem. We've tended historically to condemn the citizens of Bethlehem for failing to provide hospitality to Joseph and his very pregnant wife, But there is no great likelihood that there was any failure of hospitality, something almost unheard of in any case in Middle Eastern culture. Many of the other traditional features of the nativity story are likewise not actually present in the biblical narrative. That Jesus was born at night, that the birth occurred virtually upon the arrival of the holy couple in Bethlehem. Verse 6 suggests the opposite and that they tried to find accommodation, but were refused for lack of space. 
Indeed, the translation in has also recently been challenged by scholars more familiar with ancient Near Eastern practice and vocabulary. The ordinary word for in or hostile is not used here, and the word translated in is used elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke to refer to the home, to a, to a room in a home or house. In fact, it is used to refer to the room where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Last Supper. That room was presumably the guest room of someone's home, and yet it is referred to with the term that is used here and translated in, as in there was no room in the inn. So the meaning is probably that the guest room of the home in which Joseph and Mary stayed was already taken when they arrived. They were squeezed into the space that was left, perhaps, but we don't know, with the animals in the other part of the house. If Jesus were born in a private home, it is also likely that Mary had a good deal of help in the childbirth, the women of the house or the women guests who were also there. Perhaps the village midwife was called. Not the scene we are used to, but very likely what actually happened. It's been pointed out that if the shepherds had found the Christ child in a barn, they would immediately have done something about that, taken them into their homes or whatever. But he was in a home, surrounded by caring people. You'll notice that Luke gives us absolutely not a hint of the time of year, much less the date of the Lord's birth. Despite the best effort, efforts of scholars, both ancient and modern, no one knows when Jesus was born. One scholar writes that it was probably a combination of two factors that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at that time. The registration didn't require them to be there at a particular date. The requirements of the tax registration gave them the opportunity. The gossiping tongues in Nazareth probably hurried them on their way. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The verb translated bring good news is our verb evangelize. It was to become the characteristic way of speaking about communicating the message of Christ and his salvation to others. Bring them the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, 
pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. If you wonder why Luke makes that remark about Mary and says nothing about what Joseph thought, the answer is probably that he talked to Mary. But Joseph was dead by the time he was able to interrogate the people who were eyewitnesses of these events. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this magnificent text, this epoch-making narrative, this life-defining piece of history. So beautifully written. Such an economy of words, and yet such power and emotional effect in the narrative itself. Open our hearts to receive this truth again anew and still to greater depth, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'm not precisely sure how many times I have preached this text that we have just read, but it's a considerable number, perhaps upwards of 20 times over the last 38 years or so. No wonder. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, and no other passage or text provides an account of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Matthew mentions the birth of Jesus, but gives no details. It's here in Luke that we learn of the Holy Family's journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, of the baby being laid in a manger, of the angelic announcement to the shepherds. This text is the source of almost all of our Christmas hymns and carols, and no celebration of Christmas would be complete without the reading of it. Rich and multilayered as this text is, in all of those sermons that I have preached on this account of the birth of Christ, I have never concentrated on the particular phrase in verse 11 that is our subject this morning. Luke 2 is manifestly a narrative, an account of things that happened. One can, of course, believe that the events therein described never happened. But one cannot deny that Luke, in his narrative, intended to describe what actually happened when Jesus was born. Richard Dawkins, the Oxford professor and outspoken atheist, writes, The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda, and they are a very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Ouch. There's nothing new, of course, in Dawkins' opinion. The same things were said about the Christian message by Greco-Roman critics in its earliest days. Still, we're grateful, in a way, for people like Richard Dawkins. They put the point plainly. Dawkins' passion for atheism trumps his good banners, and he doesn't mind resorting to name-calling. But in that sense, he is a very unmodern man and the better for it, in our view. He cares about whether things are true or false. Many in our time do not, scholars included. But Dawkins thinks it's important to separate fact from fiction, to expose error, and to face facts. And surely he's exactly right. 
No one is more eager for facts to be faced than Christians themselves. There's a lot of nonsense that passes for religious faith, even in the Christian world. We're the first to admit it. It's embarrassing to us. What is more, we're quite ready to admit, indeed, we insist that others admit that if the events reported here did not happen, then Christianity is nothing but pop propaganda. It may be more helpful, more life-affirming propaganda than Richard Dawkins' propaganda, and his atheism with a human face is certainly propaganda, but it's propaganda nonetheless. Stories or rumors spread to justify or buttress a set of cherished beliefs. We'd much rather people face the Bible's hard-edged claims of truth and history, absolute and unqualified truth, that is truth for everybody and for all time. Much rather that than dismiss the entire matter with platitudes about the sublime moral teaching of Jesus or postmodern tripe about the truth being whatever makes anybody happy. He either was or was not born of a virgin. Angels either announced or did not announce his birth. If he wasn't and if they didn't, we will be the first ones to shout from the, height, from the housetops that Christianity is untrue. It's good news is not, in fact, news at all, good or bad. Our faith, like it or not, is fundamentally and necessarily the claim that certain events happened in the world during the reign of Augustus, later during the reign of Tiberius. When Quirinius, and then later when Pontius Pilate were the governors of Palestine. But to the perpetual amazement of Richard Dawkins and others like him, there have been a great many people, learned people, sophisticated people, grown-up people, even the sort of people who have no patience with inventions masquerading as facts. Even Oxford professors like Dawkins, even professional scientists with impeccable credentials who've considered Luke's narrative, his careful telling of the truth, his credentials as a serious historian, and come firmly to the conclusion that what we have before us in these first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2 is a faithful record of actual events. Unusual, spectacular, unexpected, utterly unprecedented as they were. Early Christians knew very well how preposterous all of this sounded to the sophisticated people of their world. But there were a great many of them who had actually witnessed these things taking place. They knew this is what had happened. However contrary to the expectations and the prejudices of their time. But Richard Dawkins is right about another thing. This history carries a message. He dismisses it as propaganda a term that usually nowadays carries a negative connotation, suggesting that it is a false message, untrue, even dangerous. We are, however, true, sure that it is true, and we find its message to be something very different from propaganda in the ordinary sense of the term. But it is 
very definitely a message. In the Bible, history itself, and especially the history of salvation, of the great turning points in God's plan of the salvation of the world, reveals the same theology, even explains in some degree, to some degree, the same theology, the same soteriology, if you will, the same teaching about salvation as you will have in the expositions of that doctrine in the letters of the Apostle Paul. All through the Bible we see this. Eternal truth stamped on the face of history. And especially on that history in which, by which, the Lord God fulfills his plans for mankind, either for salvation or for judgment. In this sense, the history of God's dealings with mankind is not merely a subject of divine revelation, something taught in the Bible. It was revelation at the time it happened, and it continues to be revelation to us in the record or the narrative of those events as we read of them in the Bible. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, that revelation, that message, is encapsulated in a single word. What the angel announced, as we read in that verse, 11, was that the baby who had been born in Bethlehem was none other than Christ the Lord. Now, the terms the angel used were familiar to the shepherds. The angel wanted them to understand what was being said to them, so the message was put in terms they would understand. They were Jews. They were steeped in the Word of God, the Law, and the Prophets. And in these books, as they had heard them read in the synagogue and at the feasts and on other occasions, they had learned of the coming of the Messiah. From their childhood, they had known that God had promised to send a deliverer to restore the fortunes of his people. Jews had been looking for the coming of the Messiah by this time for centuries. Every Jew thought about the Messiah, wondered what he would do when he came. Christ, as you know, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. That is, it means in Greek what Messiah means in Hebrew. The verb from which the noun Christ is derived, as is true of the verb from which the noun Messiah is derived, means, that is to say, both verbs mean to pour, as in the pouring of oil over the head of the man to anoint him to be king. The Messiah, or the Christ, is, in other words, the one whom God has anointed or appointed to be Israel's king. Christ means, as Messiah meant, the anointed one, which in the context of biblical prophecy means the anointed one, the long-promised deliverer, Messiah. So far, so good. But then the angel says that the Christ, the Messiah, is the Lord. The Greek word kurios has a variety of meanings. It can refer to the owner of a property, say a vineyard, or the master of slaves. It can, in fact, refer to anyone who occupies a higher position than others in a particular community. 
but it is also the term regularly used to refer to God. Kurios is the term most often used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, executed some 200 years before Christ, to translate Yahweh. Yahweh, you remember, is the personal name for God. William, Robert, John, those are personal names. Yahweh, the one who is, is the personal name for God. So, being the personal name for God, kurios is not actually a translation of Yahweh. It is a substitution for it. You remember that the Jews were superstitious about pronouncing the divine name and substituted the Hebrew word Lord whenever the name Yahweh occurred in the biblical text. The Septuagint translators were Jews and did the same thing in their Greek translation and for some reason never satisfactorily explained to me, Christian translators have done the same ever since. When you come across Lord in your reading of the Old Testament, whenever that term refers to God, as it usually does, the Hebrew text reads Yahweh. Now what's significant for our purposes this morning is that the use of the Lord, the word Lord here in chapter 2 verse 11, is clearly as a reference to the divine name. Christ the Lord really could not mean anything else but Christ who is Yahweh. In other words, the angel was saying, whether the shepherds grasped this at the moment or not, and I suspect they did not, that the Messiah was God himself. That the baby lying in the manger was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who had revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. The God who was the creator of heaven and earth. The larger context confirms this. In Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, in chapter 1, which the old man wrote, we read, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophesies of his infant son, the little boy who would grow up to be John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. In that verse, the Most High and the Lord are in parallel to one another. And Lord there could only mean that as Malachi had prophesied centuries before, the coming of the Messiah would be the coming of Yahweh himself. This is all the more interesting because as the Gospels go on to make clear, nobody was expecting. Even the believers among them, no one was expecting that the Messiah would be God himself. They did not yet have a doctrine of the triunity of the living God that awaited the incarnation itself for its revelation. And so they were unprepared for the idea of an incarnation, of God sending himself, as it were, to Israel. And then, of course, utterly unprepared for the idea of the living God being a little baby. It was a mystery for which they could not really have been expected to grasp, or which they could not really have been expected to grasp. Now, to be sure, 
there were certainly intimations of the divine identity of the coming Messiah in the prophecies of his coming in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah chapter 9 and Malachi chapter 5. But the idea itself was so far beyond their imagination, it simply did not register. But here, at the birth of Jesus, the angel made a point of saying that the baby boy was both the Messiah and God himself. Now, don't let your familiarity with Christ's identity as God the Son, now become man, diminish the stupendous declaration of the angel. The Lord had come into the world as a baby boy. This is the Christian declaration. This is the foundation of our faith. And this is the message we proclaim to the world. The Son of God became a man so that men might become the sons of God. It's not hard at all to identify one after another. Fabulously important implications of this simple fact. Our salvation requires the greatest conceivable things to be done on our behalf. Most people don't think that. Most of the people you rub shoulders with every day have never thought that. If they have any concept of salvation or reconciliation with God or life after death, it's something ordinary, predictable, relatively undemanding. Do this often enough. Do that often enough. Don't be an axe murderer. It ought to suffice. The idea that nothing less than the incarnation of God and his suffering, ignominy, and death at the hands of his own creatures is utterly foreign to them. They don't imagine that their situation is hopeless apart from the intervention of God himself in such a magnificent and tragic way. They don't see themselves as exposed to God's judicial wrath because of their sin and rebellion. Whatever their religion, whatever their philosophy of life, including that of a great many people who call themselves Christians, if they have any hope of something after death, it rests entirely on an ordinary calculation of effort and reward. Not much effort, in fact. And a reward so vague, so uninteresting, that their hearts never beat faster in anticipation of it. They don't see that theirs is a problem so serious, so fatal, that such an extraordinary thing would be required to deliver them from it. Every other faith, Every other philosophy of life enables you to grab the brass ring somehow, some way, by your own effort. Your commitment, your obedience, your good nature, in whatever way it is required in that religion or that philosophy, it will be what you do that tells the tale. There's no great in event in history upon which your hope of salvation turns. There's no dramatic interruption of the ordinary round of human life that makes possible what otherwise would have been absolutely impossible. Nothing makes more plain that our faith as Christians is not a naturalistic faith at all. 
It does not trade in things that any man can know and any person can do. Herein lies the difference that separates absolutely Christianity from all other faiths and all other philosophies of human life. It is an account of things that have happened in the world that human beings could not and did not make happen. Or two, the nature of salvation itself is a divine work and a divine gift. In almost all human thinking about salvation, whatever a human being comes to think salvation is, in this life or the life to come, it is accomplished by the ascent of man, not by the descent of God. Whether we're speaking of the great religions of the world, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or the secular philosophies now popular in our time, even the atheistic ones, the ones that come and go and have always come and gone, believe me, the ones that are popular today won't be popular 50 years from now. Whatever is required to be done in those views of life, man must do and man can do. Only in the Bible, only in the Bible, are we taught that only God himself could rescue us and only by doing the greatest conceivable things, things so immense in their conception that we ourselves cannot even grasp them, and only by suffering the greatest conceivable pain on our behalf. Think of this history. See how little any of these people do. The baby was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. She did nothing. Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he has to. It wasn't his idea. The shepherds were simply tending their flocks. They didn't, be, they didn't pray to be visited by an angel. It was a complete surprise. God is at work here. We are but the witnesses and the beneficiaries of what he is doing. This is why love and grace and faith are the fundamental terms of the Christian system and the Christian message. There is no mighty love of God reaching down to man in the other great religions of the world. There are no unsearchable riches of Christ in the other faiths and philosophies of mankind. And there is certainly no suffering God, no self-sacrificing God, no God willing to undergo indescribable humiliation and suffering at the hands of his own creatures if only he might deliver them from sin, judgment, and eternal death. There is no reason to say in any of those other religions, in any of the other philosophies of life, no reason to say what Mary says in her Magnificat. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Or third, salvation is a deeply personal matter not some systematic calculation of merit and desert. It's personal on God's side. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to save it. But it's also personal on our side. Everywhere in the Bible, our embrace of Christ and his salvation is a matter of personal trust, of love for him, gratitude to him, so great 
that it has the power to transform our lives, eventually to eradicate our selfishness and make us into lovers of God and our neighbors. This explains so much of what we read in the Bible about salvation and the Christian life and why the Bible tells such a completely different story than everyone else tells. In the Bible, it is so much a matter of fear and of sorrow and of the broken heart and of longing. And then all of that replaced by joy and peace and the fulfillment of life. Calculations of merit and desert are invariably joyless. When you get your check in the mail or when it's handed to you at work, do you clutch it to your breast? Do tears begin to well in your eyes? You look at it and you can't believe the numbers you see on the stub? Oh, of course not. You know it's coming. It's supposed to come. In fact, it has to come. In our day and age, if it doesn't come, you can sue them. <laughs> Where does the joy come from? It comes from a great love, a great sacrifice, a mighty salvation that opens up for us a way to eternal life when we were deservedly heading to eternal death. We love because we've been loved. We rejoice because God has done such extraordinary things for us. We live with a deep and an abiding peace, even in this world of struggle and sorrow and death, because we know that God loves us and has made terrible sacrifices for us. And if that God is on our side, who can be against us? Christians, you see, are like Joseph, somewhat clueless witnesses to extraordinary things that have been done for them and given to them. Christians are like Mary, who find created within them an eternal life they had nothing to do with bringing into existence. John, in the first chapter of his gospel, makes a point of saying that what happened to Mary is like what happens to every believer. He or she is born into eternal life by a secret and supernatural work of divine power within him or within her. Christians are also like the shepherds, flabbergasted to learn of extraordinary things they never imagined, but delighted beyond words to discover that they're all true, just as they had been told. The English novelist and playwright Dorothy Sayers wrote of the birth of Jesus Christ, From the beginning of time until now, this is the only thing that has ever really happened. When you understand this, you will understand all mysteries and all history. How right she was. Amen.